Victorians had a special relationship with visually striking things. They made and they admired dazzling works of architecture and visual art, and they invented and embraced new visual practices such as photography. Hello, I'm Vanessa Warren, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the final episode of Season 3 of Victorian Samplings. To close our season, we invited Christopher Keep to speak with us about the visual and material history of ectoplasm. Amanda Schubert agreed to tell us about the display of the Koh-i-Noor diamond in London in 1851, and we asked Anne Sullivan to share her knowledge of a visual marvel, the destruction of the Crystal Palace by fire. This episode is, in a word, spectacular. Please stay with us. Christopher Keep is an associate professor at Western University and the editor of the Victorian Review. He's published widely on Victorian information technologies, disability studies, and the scientific study of the occult. Chris, thanks for making time to speak with me and welcome. Oh, you're so welcome, Vanessa. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So Chris, past guests have brought us all sorts of fascinating Victorian objects and material histories to ponder, but yours is in a category of its own. You're speaking with us about ectoplasm. What is ectoplasm? What is ectoplasm? Well, it, it's a Victorian term. It actually was coined in 1894 by a well-known doctor and a psychical researcher. His, was named Charles Richet. Uh, Richet would actually go on to, to win the Nobel laureate. And Richet was investigating a spiritualist medium whose name was Eusepio Palladino. She was an Italian medium uh, of remarkable powers. And Richet was interested in the specific kinds of physical manifestations that Palladino was capable of. So the word ectoplasm comes from the Greek. It's ecto and plasma, and that means something like exteriorized substance. Now, previously, there had been reports of vapors and curious columns of light emanating from mediums, famously Daniel Douglas Holm. But the Palladino case, this was a little different. Palladino was capable of producing fully realized phantom limbs. In this instance, the one that prompts Richet to come up with this word ectoplasm, Palladino produced from the top of her head a third arm. So for spiritualists and psychical researchers, ectoplasm then is a new kind of matter. It's a kind of psychical matter that derives from the medium's own body, but allows the spirits to not only speak with the living, but to actually physically manifest in our world. So to, to put it differently, we might say ectoplasm is the material form of the immaterial. What did observers share about the look or the feel or, or dare I ask, the smell of ectoplasm? Yeah, I think one of the things that's most distinctive about ectoplasm is the degree to which it, it um, repelled people. It was something that from the get-go, people think of as something that's an affront to our senses. So ectoplasm took a variety of shapes and forms, but it was most commonly described as a thick, clotted, mucus-like substance. 
It was viscous, it was fibrous, it was gelatinous, it was globular, it was sticky, it was oozy, and it issued from the medium's orifices. So this sticky, oozy, viscous, fibrous stuff spilling out of noses, mouths, ears, eyes, navels, even the vagina was a common place for this stuff to suddenly begin appearing in the world. Most often, however, it came from the mouth. The structure of ectoplasm varied then from clouds and veils to thin long rods, membranes, heavy masses. Ectoplasm was reported to disappear when exposed to light. It would snap back violently into the medium's body because it was repelled by the touch of light. To touch ectoplasm, it was sticky, kind of gooey. It would leave a residue on the hands. And this is one of the reasons why mediums insisted that seances should take place in near darkness and that sitters should not approach the mediums or the emanations that had formed. One of the most famous researchers in ectoplasm is the wonderfully named Albert Baron von Schrecknotzing. And the Baron von Schrecknotzing described it as being akin to abdominal connective tissue. It had different colors. It was sometimes white, black, gray, but, but white was the most common. To touch it, it was moist, cold, and sticky, but it was also living tissue. It was mobile. It seemed to slowly unfurl like a ribbon from a spool, and it would change shape and form over time. And yes, it did have a smell. It smelled of ozone. I'm not even quite sure what ozone smells like, but that's what it was apparently most commonly compared to, the smell of ozone. So maybe we can stay with the materiality of the spirit world by thinking about Victorian seances and about just how much stuff was involved. So we could think about, of course, tables that turned, uh, about spirit slates or talking boards, or, or perhaps about a favorite of mine, the spirit trumpet. And when we were planning for this interview, Chris, you reminded me of another material presence at the seance, which was the cabinet, like a large cabinet from which spirits emerged and then moved through the room, often touching the participants. I'm wondering about how ectoplasm compares to those large-scale, full-body materializations. That's a good question, and it's a useful way to distinguish what's happening at the end of the century uh, with ectoplasm and the kinds of uh, physical manifestations that were happening at the mid-century, sort of the height of the spiritualist phase. And that it is important to, to recognize that ectoplasm is really distinctively late 19th century, whereas what you're describing, the full-body manifestation, is, is really a kind of mid-century phenomenon. Um, the full-body materializations were most commonly associated with the medium Florence Cook, who was investigated by Sir William Crookes in the early 1870s. And Sir William Crookes's investigations of the young Florence, she was 15 at the time that they started this, uh, represented the first serious scientific investigations into the phenomenon of spiritualism. So in these seances, Florence would begin in a locked cabinet. Crookes would first check to see that the cabinet was empty, that there were no openings that might allow something to be passed to the medium, for example, and that the medium herself was not concealing anything. So Florence would be patted down to make sure there wasn't anything secreted in her blouse. And then as the seance proceeded, you would have Florence in this locked cabinet. Outside of her is the seance circle. 
the sitters who've come to observe Florence's capacity to draw in the world of the beyond. And suddenly a figure would emerge from this locked cabinet, a fully formed figure looking rather like a young Victorian woman who would then actually move about the room and would talk to people in the room would have an, uh, would refer to herself. She was called Katie King. Florence becomes, in some senses, Katie King, and Katie would interact with the sitters. Katie would sort of flirt with the sitters. She would touch the sitters. She would answer questions. In one famous instance, however, one of the sitters dared to reach out and touch Katie King, the spirit, with his hand, and discovered, of course, that Katie was <laughs> flesh and blood and, and not spirit at all. And that certainly put a crimp in, in young Florence Cook's uh, future as a, as a medium. Now, ectoplasm. What the ectoplasmic mediums were able to achieve, I'm going to take a famous example, Ava C., Eva Carrière, a French ectoplasmic medium, and perhaps the most famous of the ectoplasm mediums. What Eva C. was able to achieve was quite different from what Florence did. Here, the medium is never merely a medium. The means by which something else, an emanation from beyond, takes center stage. Eva C. never kind of disappears into a cabinet so that something else might appear. Instead, Ava C. is right there in the seance room the whole time with these eyes all attending to her as she draws out of her interior resources some kind of gelatinous material that then begins to unfurl and the investigators can reach out and touch. There's a famous photograph of the Baron von Schrenk-Nutzing reaching out his hand as, as the ectoplasm drips and oozes into it. And so there's a sense in which Ava C. always remains the focal point of our attention. She commands the scene. She is the scene. And this shift reflects a kind of new understanding of mediumship at the end of the century. The ectoplasmic manifestation is an aspect of the medium's own body. The fluid is drawn from her own physical resources. Schrenk von Nutzing would, would actually weigh Ava C. before and after to see how much of her own body weight had been consumed in the production of these manifestations. So what we're watching then in the world of ectoplasmic manifestations is not so much the medium opening the door to the great ethereal beyond, and inviting some other kind of being to enter into the realm of the living, we're watching the medium herself produce, in a sense, kind of birth the other, the spirit, the specter. And so in the world of ectoplasm, the act of mediation, the way in which the ground makes the figure possible, is actually being made visible. We're actually watching that process by which ground makes figure. So the ectoplasmic medium tells us, you know, long before Marshall McLuhan did, that the medium is the message. Thank you for that, Chris. You've mentioned photographs. Can we talk a little bit more about photographs of ectoplasm? I'm thinking about, you know, how they were taken and also how they were received. Right, so we, we know that in general, ectoplasm doesn't like light. It would retreat from light. And so there, are, there, there, is, a, there, is, a, there is a film, at least there was a film, and we have stills from the film 
of an ectoplasmic manifestation. And what's fascinating about that short film and the stills that we still have of it is that it shows not ectoplasm being extruded, but it retreating into the body because light has touched it. And ectoplasm retreats, apparently instinctively, from the touch of that kind of radiation. But Ava C was found to be able to withstand brief magnesium flashes if she was first allowed to prepare herself behind a close curtain and then to open the curtains when she was ready. And so that's what they would do. Ava C would pocket herself in, into her behind her curtain. Curtain was drawn. She'd go into her trance. And then when she was ready, when the, when the ectoplasm had manifested itself, she would open the curtain. And then the Baron Schrenk Nutzing was there with his battery of five stereographic cameras hooked up to these magnesium flash pots. And he could trigger them one after another. And so the magnesium would flash, a brief, brief flash. But at the same time the magnesium flashed, the camera lens would open, capture the incident, and then close. Schrenk Notzing took 225 photos of Ava C between 1909 and 1913, and he published the results of those photographs in a volume called The Phenomena of Materialization. Appeared in 1913 in Germany, it then gets translated into a very successful book in 1923 in English, and of course the Baron also sold the photos individually for eight Deutschmarks each. Chris, how were these photos received? Did this help the mediums kind of make the case for ectoplasm? Did it undermine their claims? Well, it certainly allowed the mediums a degree of celebrity and financial success and stature within the spiritualist world that they might not otherwise have had. So Ava C, for example, becomes quite a noted celebrity figure within spiritualist circles. And I think the fact of the photographs, which were widely distributed and widely discussed, certainly helped her. So you can see by the time in the 1920s, for example, Scientific American is having a, a, a contest with a large substantial cash prize for the first photographic evidence of ectoplasms. The New York Times is running regular articles on this contest and the stuff that was being submitted for it. So there is clearly a strong interest in photographic evidence for ectoplasm. And though those photographs never really help make the case for ectoplasm, in fact, to a large degree, I think the photographs perhaps undo the case for ectoplasm. It's clear from many of the photographs that there is something going on here that's something other than the manifestation of the beyond in the real. So it may not offer empirical evidence for the veracity of ectoplasm, but it certainly goes a long way within spiritual circles in helping promote these women and their agency, their role in producing these things, their stature as celebrity figures. It, it is their version of the selfie, right? It's their version of a way of promoting themselves and it works extremely well for them. Chris, thank you for that. With your help, we'll be linking our listeners to some archives of these photographs through our podcast website. But just as a last question, Chris, I'm wondering about, well, some listeners might be thinking, this is all fake. Why study the claims and creations of, of discredited mediums? To put this another way, why study something that confirms our arguably flattering sense of ourselves as, as post-Victorian people, as more logical, as, as less gullible? 
Mm, yeah, great question. Um, and let, let's start by by acknowledging that there were serious investigations to ectoplasm that largely did discredit the phenomenon. In 1920, Ava C. was investigated by the Society for Cyclical Research in London, and an analysis of her ectoplasm revealed it to be made of largely chewed paper and its ability to somehow manifest faces. So one of the things Ava C. would do is she would extrude these kinds of this, uh, uh, this connective bodily tissue that would kind of spurl out of her body. And at the end of this rod uh, or this ribbon, you would see a face. And the SPR, in conducting their investigation of this curious phenomenon whereby ectoplasm would kind of manifest the face of someone, showed those faces to be largely photographs cut out of the French magazine Le Miroir. They found the photographs that, that she had cut out. And so they would... <laughs> take her ectoplasm and they would match it up and they would say, well, this is actually a photograph of Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> or, or this is actually the French president, Raymond Poitre, and you've clearly just put a beard on him. And so that, that you know, yes, there was a, much to discredit the phenomenon. But does that make the photographs any less interesting or any less important for us to study? So I always begin my classes on the late Victorian occult by acknowledging from the very first class that much of what we're going to be studying about from mediums and spirit photography to ectoplasm, that it's all fake. So let's just get it out there. Let's just assume that it's all fake. Let's start with that assumption. It may not be, but let's begin with the strong skeptical point of view. Even if it was all fake, if it was all discredited, I think then it would maybe still be too hasty to conclude that there's no reason for still taking it seriously as an object of study. For one thing, the Victorians believed it, or many Victorians believed it. And so if the goal of our class is to better understand this period, then I think things like ectoplasmic photographs offer us a really interesting lens to think about what the Victorians believed, what they wanted to. Maybe their hopes, dreams, and ambitions, and their fears are as important as the things that they were able to prove. Also, I think something like ectoplasm and the idea of it being discredited gives us an opportunity to think about the limits of knowledge, about what does and does not constitute legitimate objects of study, and the ways in which say, institutional and disciplinary norms have been erected to protect some ways of knowing from others. So that we can make the claim that, yes, in our world that's largely kind of uh, devoted to and has come to embrace the scientific worldview, well, we see something like ectoplasm and it feels to us illegitimate, but maybe that is also an important part of how science became science itself. Science became science by expelling, by objecting spiritualism. It's one of the ways in which it achieved its cultural status was through that encounter. So if you want to understand something about science, maybe you need to look at ectoplasm as the abject of science. Well, one thing I, we might add to this discussion is to think about why ectoplasm today. I think that we are at a moment critically within the humanities where we become curiously obsessed in a new way with the thingness of the world. Thing theory, object-oriented ontology, all these have become important, useful paradigms for reopening the discussion of subjectivity and our relationship to the world. And of course, ectoplasm fits well in that paradigm. 
the paradox of, of ectoplasm is that you have these mediums who are trying to communicate with the world of spirit, with the world of the immaterial, with the world of the ideal, and can only do so through things, through this thick, viscous, gooey, post-human stuff. So in lots of ways, you can see the ways in which ectoplasm helps us illustrate, perhaps even expand the discussion around thing theory, the post-human, the ways in which subjectivity must always depend on a physical substrate that takes us beyond merely language and discourse and the shaping categories of the mind. That said, the reason why I think ectoplasm is so intriguing at this post-linguistic turn in the humanities, this moment where we're becoming increasingly sensitive to the materiality of the world, is that ectoplasm also reveals the reverse, that there is no thing separate from spirit. This is the spiritual world of things in which spirit itself never disappears, but remains endlessly entangled with matter. And I think ectoplasm as just that, as the matter that is immaterial, the immaterial that is matter, the impossibility of thinking the one without the other, that, to my mind, is the great opportunity of ectoplasm at, at this juncture. Thank you so much for this conversation, Chris. It's been great speaking with you. Oh, you're most welcome. This is fun. Victorian samplers, I'm Jessie Cron. I'm speaking with Amanda Schubert. Amanda is a lecturer and researcher in both the departments of English and Communication Arts at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Amanda specializes in 19th century British literature, cultural studies, film studies, and media aesthetics. We'll be talking about the Koh-i-Noor diamond today, so on that note, Amanda, could you tell us about the history of the diamond? The Koh-i-Noor diamond is a large diamond. We first know of it in the court of the Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan in the 17th century. And we know that Shah Jahan had it for um, a couple of different reasons. He famously constructed at his palace, at the seat of the Mughal Emperor Empire in Delhi, the peacock throne, which was an incredibly ornate diamond and gemstone encrusted throne that featured um, what would later be called the Koh-i-Noor diamond, what was at that time just a very fabulous large diamond. It formed the eye of one of the jewel encrusted peacocks on the throne. After 1739, the Persian Emperor Nader Shah invades the Mughal Empire. One of the things that he does is he sacks the peacock throne and he picks out the Kohinoor diamond and wears it on his armband. So it becomes in itself an object of significance. He also names it Kohinoor, which is uh, Persian uh, and means mountain of light. And it goes on for the next hundred or so years to have a quite extraordinary history of conquest, of being possessed and then stolen in what we would now call South Asia and the Middle East. Nader Shah, the ruler of the Persian Empire, 
has the Kohinoor. He's wearing it in his armband. And um, he is eventually assassinated by his own bodyguards, who he doesn't trust. And he has a troop of Afghan bodyguards who he does trust. And he says to the Afghan bodyguards, I don't trust those other guys. I would like you to stage a coup, overtake those other guys and become, become my main bodyguards. Uh, the Persian bodyguards get wind of this and they assassinate Nadir Shah and come after the Afghan bodyguards. The chief bodyguard is named Ahmed Khan Abdali. He manages to disrupt the coup. He doesn't succeed in ending it, but he does protect um, a lot of the gold and treasure, like material goods that the Persian bodyguards are trying to seize for his, this act of protection, the first lady of the harem gives this man, Ahmad Khan Abdali, the Kohinoor. Ahmad Khan Abdali flees back to Afghanistan um, and he becomes the ruler of the Afghan empire, the Durrani empire. And he has with him the Kohinoor. It stays in the Afghan empire for about 60 years and passes down to Ahmad Shah's grand nephew. Uh, at that time, the Punjab empire, the Sikh empire in Punjab is rising in power and beginning to be of concern to the British East India Company, that this is a powerful part of India at a moment when they are trying to consolidate power the ruler of the Sikh empire is Ranjit Singh. And that man wants the Kohinoor because of what it means. So it's in the hands of one of the Durranis, Shah Shuja. And Ranjit essentially imprisons him, invites him over, come for a visit, sticks him in a castle and says, I will let you out when you give me the Kohinoor. In 1813, the Kohinoor comes to Ranjit Singh, who also wears it in an armband and for whom it very self-consciously is a symbol of his imperial might and of the, the power of the Sikh empire. And now we're in like the mid 19th century, 1840s. And Britain is not yet, does not yet have direct rule over India, but the East India Company is not really a trading company anymore. They have been charged by the British crown to oversee uh, and manage Britain's Indian Empire. The British East India Company is led by a very enterprising Governor General, Dalhousie. And he's young and he's ambitious. And he understands that if he wants to rise in the ranks of the colonial government, uh, or what at this time is the British East India Company, he's got to make his mark. He oversees two wars in the Punjab. The second culminates in the annexation of that whole region, which is a pretty big deal because this is a powerful, outstanding empire that uh, has been impervious to British control. And he knows his history. And in particular, he knows the history of the Kohinoor. But he knows the Kohinoor stands out not because it's the most beautiful, but because it is, and these are his words, a historical emblem of conquest. He understands this history and that if it were to come to the British 
and particularly to the British crown. It would mark the British Empire as the almost teleological destined endpoint of this history. Britain becomes imagined not as just a stop along the way, but the end of the story. The stone has come to us and marks us out as the global superpower at a moment when this was precisely the kind of political work that Britain was trying to do. Dalhousie doesn't just take the Kohinoor with the rest of the booty that the East India Company seizes. He holds it aside and marks it out as something special. When Punjab is annexed, it's written in, the Kohinoor will be surrendered by the Maharaja to Queen Victoria. That language is in the treaty and it's like number two or number three, you know, right after we own you now. So 1849, Punjab is annexed. Duleep Singh forced to surrender the Kohinoor. Duleep Singh and the Kohinoor placed in the guardianship of Dr. John Logan, who watches over them both. In 1850, in February, John Logan turns over the Kohinoor to Dalhousie, the governor general. It's put on a ship and sent to England. Arrives in England late June. And on July 3rd, in honor of the 250th anniversary of the British East India Company, the deputy director of the East India Company presents the diamond to Queen Victoria as a gift. As soon as it hits English shores, the organizers of the Great Exhibition, and including um, the Crown, right, Prince Albert, who's the patron of the Great Exhibition, think this, this has really got to go on display because this is this figure for British supremacy, for Anglo-Saxon supremacy, for white supremacy over Asia. It's a figurehead of empire. Prince Albert and Dalhousie, who becomes the Marquis of Dalhousie, by the way, that title is bestowed on him by Queen Victoria for his efforts in Punjab to bring her this diamond. They start to commission articles and essays in journalism about the history of the Kohinoor. They send people to India to hear the stories of what people believed about the Kohinoor and what they understood about its history. So it's really hyped in the news. So they are engaged in like this propaganda work, like hyping this diamond as this celebrated object with this storied history. So it goes on display and it is the first thing that people want to see. This is May of 1851. The Great Exhibition has just opened. The Crystal Palace, which is the greenhouse-like building made of glass designed by Joseph Paxton that, that houses the Great Exhibition. It glows in the sun and the press says the Crystal Palace is glowing like the Kohinoor. It's like there's a Kohinoor inside a Kohinoor. Um, they haven't seen the actual diamond yet, but the imaginary surrounding it is so powerful. And so day one, the doors open and people flock to this display. It's part of the British display rather than the Indian display. So it's presented as part of British material culture and industry. The display case for it, which you can 
find if you Google Koenor Great Exhibition, um, you'll see drawings and representations of this. It is in what you could only call a giant birdcage. Um, I mean, you can't make this symbolism up, man. It's in this giant birdcage and it's got a British crown on top and it's on a red velvet pillow. The uh, historian and, and um, material study scholar, Danielle Kinsey writes about the birdcage as sort of looking like, um, almost like a hoop skirt. That it's, very, it's a very feminized shape that evokes Queen Victoria. It's like a, it's a hoop skirt, it's got a crown on top. It's a stand-in for the monarch with uh, a diamond on a red pillow inside. I mean, if you want to follow the metaphor, also extremely vaginal, the idea of uh, a diamond as genitals or as virginity will be explored later by Wilkie Collins in the Moonstone, um, but it's already sort of there in, in the display. People flock to see this and they are like, what is this tiny, <laughs> dull-looking, unshiny nub of a stone. And why are we supposed to be excited? They say it really just looks like a piece of glass and they're deeply underwhelmed. The organizers of the Great Exhibition were concerned enough about this that they leaped into action and they thought we gotta figure out how to re-mystify this diamond and make it special to people again. And I think the reason that it was of this much concern, that they expressed more concern about the response to this object than anything else in the entire great exhibition is because of the work it was doing as a cultural signifier of British supremacy. If people go and see the object that is supposed to be the symbol of Anglo-Saxon supremacy, British supremacy over the globe, and they're underwhelmed. When even one newspaper wrote, um, if you were to destroy the diamond, who really would be disappointed? That is an enormous threat to the project of empire. So they bring in specialists in optics who say, um, you know, if you put a diamond in a house made of glass, it's not gonna shine that good. These are improper display conditions. A new display case is created that creates some artificial darkness for the Koh-i-Noor, uses gas jets and mirrors as reflectors for the gas to illuminate it strategically. Wow. Yes, it's technologized through the conditions of its display. Whether or not that impressed people is unclear. Some people wrote, it was really much better, now we're impressed. Some people said, it doesn't really make a difference. Well, the story that I tell of its history in the British imagination of the 19th century ends with the recutting of the Koh-i-Noor diamond by the British. The disappointment with the Koh-i-Noor as a symbol of empire was profound enough and concerning enough that Prince Albert sought the permission of Parliament to have the diamond recut to make it more sparkly. There's no other way to put it. 
they wanted to solve for the problem of, of reception. And this is interesting because um, no one was ever going to get such a close-up look at the Koh-i-Noor uh, again until, until the imperial crown went on display at the Tower of London. I got to see it up close when I went to the Tower of London and you um, get on essentially a human conveyor belt. It moves you around the display. So I, I went around, I, I got on the conveyor belt, I had my notebook, I just went around like 15 times trying to take notes. And it sort of sparkles red in the corner and, it, and it's this shape, you know. The public was not gonna see it up close in the way that they had at the great exhibition. And if it was ever exhibited again, it would never have the same prestige as that first moment. We do know that Queen Victoria was quite disappointed with it when it was presented to her. She was like, what a weird, ugly diamond. And Dalhousie had really hoped she would wear it in her crown. And she never did. She wore it sometimes as a bracelet and more often as a brooch. There's a famous painting of her and you can see her wearing it as, as a brooch. So Prince Albert asked for permission to have this done. He brings in the best diamond polishers from Amsterdam to recut the diamond. Um, the re recutting took 38 days and it was Costers of Amsterdam, this, um, these famous Dutch diamond merchants. A special steam engine was commissioned for the recutting. And during that time, the diamond lost a tremendous amount of its weight, transformed rather dramatically into a completely different stone. And I mean, there are a lot of ways of reading the significance of that recutting. There's the aesthetic project and the concern about um, the diamond's uh, symbolic power being dependent on a particular set of optical or virtual effects. But the recutting also parallels the logic of Britain's extractive empire in the Indian subcontinent, which relied on, for example, uh, extracting cotton from agricultural laborers, dramatically underpaid farmers who are paying taxes in excess of what they make in a year uh, on their land, who, who produce cotton that feeds the cotton mills. So at the Great Exhibition, the India display didn't have diamonds. The Indian display had cotton. Like, look at this stuff that we are importing from this country we have successfully deindustrialized and impoverished in order to turn it into a uh, essentially massive farm for these raw materials that we then use our industrial machinery to turn into valuable commodities. The recutting of the diamond seems to parallel and kind of allegorize this idea of Indian as the producer of goods that are technologized and industrialized in Britain. At the same time, it parallels the white supremacist colonial ideology of India as um, primitive, irrational, close to nature producing things of value that only have value once they're rationalized 
and tutored and disciplined through British intervention. So the diamond becomes this kind of representation of India's like rough, uncivilized, requiring scientific and technological transformation by Britain specifically in order to shine, in order to sparkle. So I think we have to see the recutting as as much a piece of political theater as the diamonds display at the Great Exhibition, as the diamonds um, theft by Dalhousie in 1849. All of these are pieces of political theater and pieces of image craft designed to shore up and establish Britain's role as the number one global empire, and by extension, white supremacy as Anglo-Saxon supremacy. Presently, the diamond is set in the imperial state crown. Um, The UK has not yet uh, relinquished the possession of the diamond. What do you think about the diamond's fate today? The question of who should own the Koh-i-Noor, who should possess it, today is is very much alive and it's quite complex. India believes that the Koh-i-Noor should be repatriated to them. Uh, Pakistan says, hey, this was in Lahore as part of the Punjab empire. That's us now. That region of the Indian subcontinent is now, since partition, part of Pakistan. Um, Even Afghanistan says, hey, we had it for 60 years. That's our diamond. There is obviously no moral basis for this object to continue to be in British possession and, and particularly for it to continue to shore up the symbolic power of the British monarchy. The question of who it should be repatriated to is complicated. Thank you so much to Amanda Schubert for this fascinating discussion. I'd like to close this interview off by mentioning that in May 2022, around the time that Amanda and I had our chat, coincidentally, the Koh-i-Noor diamond tangentially came back into the public eye. The diamond is still set in the Queen's crown, and in May, when the Queen was unable to attend the state opening of Parliament, The crown was sent in her place inside its own private car to symbolize her attendance. The public's reaction was largely negative. Some people were outraged and felt that this gesture was an ostentatious and tactless display of wealth. I thought it was interesting that the diamond was once again instrumentalized in a symbolic gesture meant to convey certain ideas about the importance of Britain's monarchy. And just as the public's reaction was far afield of what the monarchy was aiming for in the 19th century when the Koh-i-Noor diamond was unveiled at the Great Exhibition, the Queen's crown, with the diamond embedded in it, was part of a story of failed political theater in 2022. I think that these sorts of connections illustrate the importance of studying 19th century material culture, in part because doing so can help us understand our own moment. For those who would benefit from a visual aid to my discussion with Amanda, we'll have links to images of the diamond before and after it was stolen and recut by the British, as well as other links that Amanda has kindly provided, available on the podcast page at craftingcommunities.net.
Hello, Vanessa here again. I'm back to share my interview with Anne Sullivan about the Crystal Palace, the building that, as Amanda Schubert explored, temporarily housed the Kohinoor Diamond in 1851. Anne is interested in the Crystal Palace's late Victorian and post-Victorian history and in this building's relocation and recreation. Before we hear from Anne, I'll let you know that she's the Anne Rothenberg Postdoctoral Scholar in Visual Culture at the California Institute of Technology. In fall 2022, she will begin a new position as the coordinator for the Teaching Assistant Development Program at the University of California, Riverside. Here's our conversation. And I'm very glad to have this chance to speak with you about a spectacular event for this episode, which is dedicated to spectacles. Thank you for joining me and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to join. I really appreciate this invitation. And many mentions of the Great Exhibition of 1851 have been made by our guests over the three seasons of this podcast, but we haven't really talked in any detail yet about the Crystal Palace. Can you tell us a little bit about it? So the Crystal Palace opens in 1851. It's this huge monumental feat of engineering. I think some of the best descriptions of the palace come from Isabel Armstrong's Victorian Glass Worlds, where she talks about this iron and crystal, or more accurately, glass sheet structure. So this is sort of a dizzying and dazzling spectacle in and of its own right. It's this towering edifice. It looks both um, form, it has a lot of form to it, but it also looks formless. There's this play of light and shadow coming through the sheet panes of glass. The the iron structure is both rigid and also looks sort of gravity defying. It looks sort of formless in and of itself. And then of course, it's housing multiple spectacles within the building. Thank you so much for that. And can you tell us about the relocation of the building to Sydenham after the Great Exhibition? Absolutely. So this is such a weird and interesting story because most of us, when we think about the Crystal Palace, we think about the Great Exhibition, but the Great Exhibition is only open for about eight months. The Crystal Palace is then relocated to a place called Sydenham Hill. Um, construction begins in 1852. It opens in 1854, and then it's open for about 80 years. So in terms of cultural legacy, the Crystal Palace at Sydenham is actually a site of great cultural interest, but we tend to go back to 1851. Um, So a lot of scholars have started to re-pivot our attention to this recreation, not only because it's an interesting idea to sort of recreate and restage and extend the Great Exhibition from 1851, but also because all of that amplification also happens in a very physical architectural way. So it's a much larger palace. There's more space for exhibitions. Um, Towers are added to provide water to these water fountain features in the front. So everything about the Crystal Palace at Sydenham is just larger, bigger, more spectacular, um, much more spectacularized. And then, of course, the Crystal Palace at Sydenham also becomes a place for outdoor spectacles, including those water fountain features, but more famously, Charles Brock's uh, firework displays, which become this huge outdoor entertainment. How was the relocation and kind of the reimagining of the Crystal Palace received by Victorians? 
So this is something I'm still figuring out as well, in part because whenever we're looking back at this episode, we are looking back and there's a sort of later reception of the Crystal Palace as being a quote unquote lesser version of the Great Exhibition. But that seems to be a later opinion that tends to cloud our judgment of this. So my understanding is when it initially opens, there's some excitement about it. The people who are involved in creating the Crystal Palace decide to create sort of, I think one of the quotes is like an illustrated encyclopedia or this encyclopedia that you can inhabit and walk around and experience this sort of spectacularized version of education where you can look at all these different exhibits and learn different things. So there's a lot of excitement around it. There's lots of bringing um, dignitaries that are visiting from other countries would often be brought to the palace as a site of interest. So my understanding is it is a popular location and it's only later the modernists we start to find it and think about it as sort of this quote unquote lesser space. Maybe we can make a transition into the 20th century now because the focus of our conversation is going to be about the post-Victorian history of the Crystal Palace and its destruction. We're going to talk about a major theme in your research, Anne, about specifically the destruction of buildings by fire. And we also have, I understand, more than one fire in play in terms of the history of the Crystal Palace. So I'm just going to pass it over to you, Anne. What would you like to share with us? So I'm similarly fascinated by this really destructive end to the Crystal Palace. Um, There are multiple sort of smaller fires in the Crystal Palace history, but they don't have great destructive effects. Um, I'm building from J.R. Piggott's study of the Crystal Palace, the Palace for the People, um, for my main source, as well as newspaper articles about the fire. So the main fire that we're talking about right now happens in 1936. There's no real clear answer for how this starts. So to this day, we're not quite sure what happened, but there seems to be a consensus that there's initially what seems to be a smaller fire and then this incredibly rapid spread of fire. It's a little bit unclear if the rapid spread of fire happens because of a potential gas leak that catches and sort of spreads throughout the building. Um, One of the other conjectures I've seen is that the floors of the Crystal Palace are made of timber and there's this great accumulation of dust underneath them that becomes a source of very easy flammable material that then helps um, propagate the fire. It's also a very large, very airy edifice, and there is a wind blowing at the time that sort of speeds the fire along. So we have this really harrowing tale of escape um, where someone alerts an orchestra that's playing and performing at the time and practicing. They're sort of gathering their instruments and they run out of the building sort of just in time. This fire also erupts through the building really, really quickly. So it seems that across the different accounts I've looked at within 20 to 30 minutes, there's already massive collapsing of the structure itself. And then I've seen different estimates of either the entire building being destroyed within the span of one hour. I've also seen some estimates say up to three hours. But either way, that's incredibly fast for this gigantic building that has this long 80 year history to just sort of melt and decay on the spot. And that's one of the objects of fascination, this idea that even though we talked a little bit earlier about the Crystal Palace in 1851 as being this thing that's both form and formless, the thing that seems to have structure and then also to sort of seem like it's sort of made of air itself because of all of these transparent sheets of glass, this idea of how can this catch fire? It doesn't seem really possible. So that becomes this huge object of fascination of how did this fire start? How does it destroy this building so quickly, especially this building that's made out of iron and glass? 
And this is fascinating and, and also disturbing. Can you tell us a little bit about how people responded to this? Like, what did eyewitnesses share or experience in the location as this was happening? So absolutely, this becomes sort of a spectacle in and of its own right. Um, there are nearby hotels and other places that are close to the Crystal Palace. So people are watching from the safety of those buildings, but also worrying about the potential spread of the fire, which luckily it does not spread. And sort of fascinatingly, people also move to the fire itself. So tons of automobiles, people on foot, people on bicycle are sort of gathering around Sid and him to watch this fire burn in real time. There's such a crowd of people that they actually prevent firefighters from reaching the base of the Crystal Palace initially. There has to be some sort of crowd management to allow firefighters to approach the building. The flames themselves are incredibly dazzling and dizzying because they're playing with that silhouetted form of the iron and glass arches and structure. Um, but they're also shooting up through broken sheets of glass the flames have been estimated somewhere between 300 and 500 feet, and those estimates come because of these two giant water towers that are part of the structure. So because eyewitnesses know that those structures, I think they're around 250 to 300 feet, they can sort of use those to measure the height of the flames themselves. Really interesting. What about the ruins? Did they become a destination? That's a great question. I'm not sure if the ruins themselves became a site for in-person tourism. It wouldn't surprise me if they did. I do know that they are a subject of visual fascination. And I know this because of really fascinating and haunting sort of comparison and contrast photographs that appear in the Times. They appear in the Illustrated London News, where viewers can look at before and after photos of this enormous crystal palace that has suddenly been reduced to these sort of twisted, gnarled, um, iron ruins that are described often as skeletal. I think there's one description that compares them to an airship disaster, this idea of sort of a structure that is both diaphanous um, and one that's a little bit firmer, suddenly becoming this twisted rubble. So there's a great fascination for this compare contrast mode in Illustrated London News and in the Times. So readers of Victorian literature and many of our listeners fall in that category know about the narrative potential of fire. So Miss Havisham's fatal injuries come to mind. The burning of Rochester Hall does too. We could make a long list of fictional depictions of fire. But are there real world examples that capture the Victorian versus the post-Victorian imagination? Absolutely. So one of the fires that I'm really interested in sort of predates the Victorian period, but ends up becoming a huge object of fascination throughout the Victorian period. So I'm talking about the 1834 burning of the Houses of Parliament. For listeners who are not aware, in 1834, the British Houses of Parliament burned down. Um, there's a fantastic um, history, a micro history of this called The Day That Parliament Burned Down by Caroline Shenton. Um, this sort of chronologically captures from across multiple accounts what happened. But in short, there's these old medieval, literally medieval forms of record keeping called wooden tally sticks. And they're just sort of gathering um, dust and they're decaying in this old antiquated government office. And they decide we need to get rid of these. They're taking up valuable space. There's multiple debates about how to get rid of the wooden tally sticks. One of those options is to burn them in an open bonfire near the palace at Westminster. And some government 
government officials decide, let's not do that. We're worried about a crowd that might gather. So they decide to burn them a little bit at a time and the new flu system for the Houses of Parliament. So they burn them for about 12 hours straight. And then suddenly people within the Houses of Parliament start reporting that things start to feel very, very warm. They feel overheated in the buildings. The floors feel hot. The walls feel hot. And then sort of an uncanny, um, prescient episode for the 1936 fire, we again have this massive destruction happening in a relatively short amount of time. So the buildings catch fire. Luckily, it seems like there are no serious injuries, um, but very similarly, hundreds of thousands of people, so enormous crowds, gather to the Palace of Westminster to watch the Houses of Parliament burn down. People are hiring coaches to bring them to the spot. People are walking to the spot. People are clambering onto rooftops. It's also visible for miles away, just as the 1936 fire is at the Crystal Palace. So it becomes this huge spectacle. And even though this predates the Victorian period by a little bit, becomes this topic because we have to fix this problem and design a new a new set of buildings and construct them, which of course takes several decades well into the Victorian period to do. There's a great speech about administrative reform in the 1850s that Charles Dickens writes that mentions the Parliament fire as an example of a failure of administrative reform. And then there's fantastic um, and sort of haunting and and wonderful all at the same time media recreations of the Parliament fire and panoramas and dioramas. Spooner has these small little objects called protean views. There's these little cards that you can hold in your hand. And when you look at them, it looks like one view. And if you hold them before a light source, they'll sort of dissolve and transform into another view. So once the buildings had designed, once there was a new design for new buildings, um, Spooner has an image of what that design will look like. And then if you hold the image before a light source, you can see the older buildings suddenly come into view and they're erupting into flame. That's fascinating, and Thank you. Perhaps this is an unfair assessment, but it seems to me that in Victorian studies, we tend to spend more time and energy thinking about inception and invention and creation rather than destruction. What do you think we gain or what have you gained by turning your attention to endings, including fiery endings? So there's multiple endings to this 1936 fire, and we could also say multiple endings to the Crystal Palace, and then by extension, multiple endings to the Victorian era itself. So while the 1936 fire is by far the most spectacular, the largest, most destructive fire that happens to the Crystal Palace, there are also subsequent destructions that continue to mark the end of the of this era of the Crystal Palace. So one of the main ones that happens is in 1941, there's a decision made to destroy one of the remaining water towers, these um, towering edifices to the side of the Crystal Palace, because there are fears that it's serving as a visual landmark for German bombers during the war. So this is uh, another sort of moment of destruction. It's photographed in the Illustrated London News. There are spectators and there's this feeling of, quote unquote, the end of an era that's repeated again in newspapers. And then strangely, we have this happen again in 1950. There's still some remaining um, edifices from the original Crystal Palace structure, the School of Art buildings. Those catch fire in 1950. And it's that smaller fire that we get this famous quote from Winston Churchill that the fire is the end of an 
era or the end of the Victorian era. So I think it's really helpful to think through these moments of destruction, which can often mark the end of an era or perhaps the beginning of a new era. I think it's helpful to think through these multiple endings, (laughs) this fire that seems to refuse to end that sparks in 1936 and sort of continues in the popular imagination and is perhaps sort of re-sparked in 1950. Or we could also, by extension, think about the Victorian era. Why did it not end um, this cultural popular imaginary of the Victorian era? Why did it not end with the death of Queen Victoria? Why is it still, quote unquote, alive in 1936? Why is it still alive in 1950? I think this type of multiplicity of endings is also helpful to think through for our current work on the long 19th century. This idea that's asking us to sort of work across what could be arbitrary temporal boundaries for eras, as well as a recent essay called Undisciplining Victorian Studies, which is also helping us think not not just in terms of working across temporalities, but working across multiple disciplines to think about the persistence of the Victorian era and what kind of work it continues to do. And I think you just gave us the perfect ending to season three of Victorian Samplings. We are so grateful for everything you've shared with us today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to Christopher Keep, Amanda Schubert, and Anne Sullivan for being fabulous guests. Thank you to Jesse Cron, Anne Hung, Natalie Lovetri, and Lucy Von Schilling for their work on this episode, both in front of the microphone and behind the scenes. This being our last episode of Season 3, I'm grabbing this chance to say a special thank you to Victorian Sampling's unofficial, unpaid, and endlessly patient technical advisor, my wonderful partner Brandon Christopher. Brandon, who is not a Victorianist, has lived with the sound of audio editing and interviewing for many months now without complaint. He has generously and patiently supported me through many technical challenges, and he has lent me his ears time and time again. Thank you, Brandon. And thank you to our funders for this episode and for all the episodes of the three seasons of this podcast, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. Victorian Samplings was recorded and produced on the territory of the Lungkwangan and Sunchothan-speaking communities of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanich peoples, and on Treaty 1 territory, traditional land of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji-Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. I'll sign off by noting, as I have for many months now, that Victorian Samplings is the podcast of the Crafting Communities Project. The Crafting Communities Project is a collaboration between Andrew Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. We hoped to make a podcast that would bring the valuable knowledge of academics, curators, archivists, and artists to new audiences. We wanted to explore Victorian material culture in conversation with experts, we wanted to learn from our guests, and we wanted to have fun. We also wanted to give a wonderful and very deserving team of students some rewarding paid employment that they could do safely from home and that would allow them to build relationships with one another at an isolating and stressful time for university students. 
we wanted to give those students a chance to develop new skills as researchers, interviewers, and editors, and we wanted to give them a chance to shine. Thanks to the immense generosity of our guests, we've done what we set out to do. Learn more about the Craft and Communities Project by visiting craftandcommunities.net or by following us on Twitter at CraftyVictorian or checking out our Instagram at crafty underscore Victorians. Thank you for listening.